I've recently finished um, reading uh, the book The Hobbit to our two older kids, which was an epic achievement to get through it, because that's a lot of attention span it demanded from them. Um, but it's an awesome story for those of you who have read it or seen the rather elaborated uh, movies, which the purists of the uh, Tolkien world, like myself, had some question marks about. Um, but the story begins with this, um, for those of you who haven't had the pleasure, this, this small hobbit like a um, three-foot-tall people in this fantasy world, um, being interrupted in his very orderly, happy life of indulgence, rest, tidiness, and order by 13 dwarves and a wizard showing up for a very, very raucous dinner party to which they were not invited at his house. And so he has this crazy evening with all of these invaders to his home, and they speak about going on this adventure this adventure to a mountain with a dragon to recover treasure. And as he listens to it, in his orderly self, he's thinking, this is terrible. They're messing up my kitchen. They're messing up my house. They're eating all my food and adventures and dragons. No. But there's something in him. There's like this little part of his soul which starts to kind of burn and come alive as he hears this story of adventure. Something deep in who he is that just starts to breathe and dream and imagine what if life could be bigger than my small, tidy, organized existence. The something of the adventurer starts to arise in this small hobbit, Bilbo Baggins. And so when he oversleeps the next morning and finds out that he has slept in and all the dwarves have gone, he has this moment where he's like, what am I going to do? Am I going to take the opportunity that they've gone and just settle down? But the adventurer in him wins. He jumps up, grabs a completely inadequately packed bag and runs out the front door and goes off on this adventure. And Bilbo's story really begins with this moment of crisis, like he's in this sort of normal run-of-the-mill hobbit lifestyle, but then this crisis moment comes of these dwarves arriving and speaking of a different kind of lifestyle. And the crisis brings an interruption to his normal, and the interruption brings a complete change of direction for his life. Now, I feel like we've been in a season of multiple crises, whether we're talking about recent political events, whether we're talking about Ukraine, Russia, whether we're talking about the economic situation and the cost of living crisis, whether we're just talking and as we've journeyed as community around many of the things that we've held and faced in the past years, change of job situation, change of where we're living, change of health, grief, financial struggles. Many of us have moved cities, homes or renovated homes and all of it. And then COVID this massive crisis that's hit our world. And really like Bilbo, crisis gives a moment of interruption. It interrupts the places we were coasting or living uncritically in a certain direction. It begs questions of us, how are we living and what are we living towards? And in that moment of crisis and interruption, the question that's asked of us, what direction do we want to go in in future? Is the safety and the normal of what we were beforehand, what we want to go back to, or actually is something of a fresh adventure being stirred in us of a different way of living and a different way of being. This is what I want us to talk about today. As we emerge from crisis after crisis, interrupting our habits, which way are we going to move into the next season? 
Now, in this new world, we have to face some realities. One of the realities we have to face is that we are no longer, um, this is not news to many of us, but we are no longer in a nation or even in a Western world where Christianity is a majority position. We are now radically in a minority in our society. So people who are analysing the move um, um, in sociology or speak of the move from being a Christendom society, i.e. a society where Christianity is mainstream, expected and normal, to being a primarily secular society. In this move, we have gone from the centre of society to the margins, from being the primary voice and former of the ethic of the culture to being a marginal voice on the sidelines. Now, within this, churches have said, well, what are we going to do about this? How are we going to keep up? And one of the questions, and much church growth theory has developed around, we need to be more relevant to the changing culture. We need more relevant music. We need more relevant speaking. We need more relevant clothes, more relevant coffee. We need Starbucks church. We need to do a different kind of church, which changes how it looks on the outside to speak a way of relevance. And there may be some good things in that, but it's failed to address the deeper question, the deeper need to be something distinct, to be superficially culturally relevant is never going to be the way of power or impact in this, in this cultural moment. And I think we've seen just too much in recent months and years that sometimes churches have pursued cultural relevance and to look the part superficially, but underneath story after story has emerged of corrupt power or sex dynamics behind the scenes. We need to walk a distinct way in the deep way of Jesus. When we planted anchor, um, we felt this symbol of the um, anchor, which is the hallmark of jewellery made in the jewellery quarter in Birmingham, where we began our journey, um, which is always worth explaining, because otherwise everyone's like, why are you called after this, like named after this maritime symbol when you could not be further from the sea? <laughs> it makes no sense at all. But this symbol has been engraved in the jewellery of Birmingham for generations. And for us, we felt like this is a symbol of depth and adventure. Because the way of Jesus goes deep. It goes to the core of who we are and transforms us from the inside out to bring deep change into a superficial culture. And it's a way of adventure because Jesus' way is always adventurous. Now, in this post-Christendom paradigm, as we've moved from the centre of the culture to the edge... We need to think through what are we therefore going to be in this moment. And because it's not our numbers or our superficial relevance that will win the city, but rather it's our radicality in the values that we espouse, in the measure of our love and the depth of our transformation. Jesus' movement changed the world, not from vast numbers who were left after his death and resurrection, but from a deeply committed, small minority who from the margins of society went out in the power of God and rocked Europe with a movement the likes of which the world has never seen before. Former Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs um, wrote about this in an article he wrote some years ago, using the phrase from elsewhere. He spoke about becoming a creative minority and said that this has always been in the heart of Jewish experience. Let me read you some of his words. 
So you can be a minority living in a country whose religion, culture, and legal system are not your own, and yet sustain your identity, live your faith, and contribute to the common good, exactly as Jeremiah said, referencing Jeremiah 29. It isn't easy. It demands a complex finessing of identities. It involves a willingness to live in a state of cognitive dissonance. It isn't for the faint-hearted, faint-hearted, but it is creative. Jonathan Sachs's words were to be a creative minority, not fearful because they're not in the majority position, but to be a people who live distinct, radical, bold, courageous, and creating a new way of being. This is what Mark Sayers has called a remnant, um, a, a term taken from the scriptures, an idea of being a people who might be small in numbers, but who are radical in their faithfulness, a small group radically committed to the way of Jesus as a counterculture in the midst of a secular society. Journalist David Brooks writes these words, spoke these words actually on a TED talk. My theory of social change is that society changes when a small group of people find a better way to live and the rest of us copy them. Margaret Mead, who's an anthropologist, said something very similar. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. We are called in this moment to go deep into the radical way of Jesus, to be deeply transformed in his goodness, life and love. Because in our moment, with a church on the margins, with a church now looking in many ways from the edge of, the, of society, he is calling his people to a deeper way of discipleship, to a remnant mentality rather than a relevant mentality, to bring forward the goodness of God as a creative dissonance to the ways of the world. In the words of Paul in the letter to the Philippians, he said this, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Harsh words. Then, he said, get these words, you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Jesus is looking to shape a people whose lives and hearts and ways and values are so distinct in their goodness and life and compassion and power that they shine like stars in the universe. That though you look out into what looks like an abyss of lacking direction and clarity, mental health crises, massive inequality, social injustice and all of it, there are these flaming bright lights, the people of God living distinctly in the midst of the world. Now, when we look at the life of Jesus, we see like two groups particularly around him, um, as will be illustrated by a completely unnecessary diagram on the screen. Um, I put this together, I spent a long time, I probably spent more time making this diagram than any other part of the uh, slides and then finished it and thought, that really wasn't necessary at all. But nonetheless, here we are. Um, we have this uh, diagram on the screen. There were two groups around Jesus. There was the disciples in Greek, the Methetes, and there were the crowds, Greek, the Oklos. There were the disciples and the crowds. The crowds kind of came and went. The crowds showed up for a miracle. The crowds came to hear his teaching, but then kind of went away. The crowds essentially were consumers of Jesus's goods, but they were ultimately spectators from a distance. However, the disciples were different. 
The disciples were apprentices to his way. They were deeply committed to his teaching and his lifestyle. They didn't come to consume and then leave. They came to be in it with him, whatever the cost, whatever it cost them, wherever it took them, whatever he called them to be or to do. Crowds essentially spectate, but disciples create. Crowds spectate, but disciples create. Mark Sayers, um, just to name him again, said, we are shaped in our moment by a culture of consumerism and spectatorship. Is that not so true of our culture? We want to just consume. We want to watch. We want to criticise from a distance. But Jesus calls for a creative people who will not lob our opinion in from a distance critiquing our culture, but who will come into the middle of it and shine like stars in the sky. Our culture would have commentary without consequence, critique without creation, consumption without compassion, or relevance without power. Jesus is calling us to a better way. The danger of our cultural moment is that we live as the crowd, but not as the disciples. That we spectate about Jesus from a distance rather than getting close to walk with him, to be transformed by him. We're going to spend some time this summer looking at this question of discipleship. So what does it mean? It's a word we use a lot, right, in church, but it's not a word that we use normally through life. So before we finish today, I want to just look at what discipleship meant in the times of Jesus, because these ideas are really foundational to then how we view our lives as Christians today. So we want to ask the question, what is discipleship? Firstly, apprenticeship. Apprenticeship. A first century disciple was somebody who followed a rabbi. A rabbi was a religious teacher who would walk through the land and who would bring their interpretation of the Torah or the teachings of the Old Testament to the people. And each different rabbi had a different interpretation of those teachings. And so as the rabbi would journey through the land, he would gather around him a group of disciples. Those disciples would, um, they were said that they would yoke themselves to their rabbi or they would become joined to the teaching of their rabbi. They would journey with him. They would absorb his every word. They would watch how he lived. When he sat down to eat, they would watch how he did it. They would see how he interacted with people. They were obsessively committed to learning his teaching and his ways, his habits and his practices. For a disciple in the first century, their lives was all about learning the lifestyle of their rabbi in order that they could imitate him. Maybe the closest word that we have for this is to be an apprentice. From Jedi to plumbers, <laughs> we know this word as someone who tracks alongside another one to see how they do it, to learn their trade and their skill and their way of life from them, to, to look to absorb their whole being and self in the ways that their master does this thing in order that they may learn how to live from them. To be a disciple of Jesus then is to wed ourselves to him, to become so connected with him, to watch how he lives, that we then may imitate his lifestyle in how we live. We are apprentices of Jesus because we journey with him to live as he would live if he were in our position, to speak as he speaks, to feel how he feels, to have compassion like he has compassion. Jesus said, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. 
Discipleship to Jesus then is apprenticeship to him that we may become like him, to become like Jesus, to be formed into his ways, to start to look like him. The second thing I want to name is that discipleship is all about the heart. It's all about the heart, which sounds like a really nice fluffy thing to say, doesn't it? So should we just dig into what that means? Just for a moment. All the other um, rabbis would take the uh, Old Testament scriptures and they would give their disciples a set of doctrine and um, interpretation of the doctrine. Essentially, therefore, it was teaching, theology, and it was rules. So you need to think like this and act like this, and then you'll be following your rabbi. But Jesus did it differently because Jesus did teach and he did have a clear ethic that was radical. But for Jesus, he was always going a layer deeper. He was less interested in just giving his disciples doctrine or new rules, but he was far more interested in getting into their hearts. For Jesus, discipleship was about becoming a different kind of person. He wanted to go to the depths of who his disciples were, not so that they would just try and keep a set of rules that were really hard to give, but they become a different kind of people, a kind of people who started to glow with the very life and goodness of God and began to shine like stars in the universe, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly being renewed day by day. It comes in again and again in Jesus' teaching, the heart, the depths of the human self, the deepest places from where our thoughts and our feelings and our choices come from. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What comes out of our mouths comes from in our hearts. Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, and some good stuff too, we hope at times. Luke 8, 15, as for that in the good soil at the end of the uh, parable of the sower, They are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. The heart is the epicentre of the discipleship journey of Jesus because he is not just looking to modify your life with new ideas or new rules, but he wants to come into the depths of who we are to set us free from our fears and our selfishness and the things that hold us and to change us from the inside out. Dallas Willard phenomenal writer on spiritual formation, uh, wrote these words. The revolution of Jesus is first and always a revolution of the human heart. His revolution does not proceed through the means of social institutions and laws or the outer forms of our existence, intending that these would impose a good order of life upon people who come under their power. Rather, his is a revolution of character, which proceeds by changing people from the inside through ongoing personal relationship with God and one another. It is a revolution that changes people's ideas, beliefs, feelings and habits of choice, as well as their bodily tendencies and social relations. It penetrates to the deepest layers of their soul. C.S. Lewis, author of Narnia and multiple other books, wrote in his work, Mere Christianity, we might, we might think that God wanted simply obedience to a set of rules, whereas he really wants a people of a particular sort. This teaching, this vision of a renewal of the deepest parts of us is all over the New Testament. It's all over Christian teachers through the ages. And again and again, as we look at what discipleship is, we come to this as central in who we are. 
Let me give you two more quickly. Henri Nouwen said that the way to God is through the heart. And James Smith, a Christian philosopher, said, discipleship, we might say, is a way to curate your heart. About a thousand years before Jesus, in ancient Hebraic wisdom literature in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. In other words, to be an apprentice of Jesus is to come and live so close to him that he may come into our very deepest self, to our deepest thoughts, our deepest feelings and our deepest choices and change us from the inside out. To be an apprentice of Jesus is to expose our inner life to him so readily and consistently and committedly that he forms us day by day into being a new kind of person with his vision, with his heart, with his joy, with his peace, that we may walk into our day to day formed to be like Jesus as we walk out into the city, to shine like stars in the universe, to live as an apprentice of Jesus, is to have your life transformed from the inside out. Following Jesus daily activates the renewal of your heart so that you can become his agent of renewal in our city. I was reading um, Psalm 50 a week or so ago, and um, the last line of it just stood out to me. I was in one of those mornings where I was kind of in the rhythm of reading it, but um, nothing was jumping out, which if you followed Jesus for a while, you know there are many of those. <laughs> but um, the Spirit just interrupted me in the kind of rhythm of it by just highlighting this verse to me. And I felt like it was significant, actually, not just for me, but for us. And the psalm finishes with these words. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Now, salvation of God means the wholeness of God's life breaking out into the world around us. Sometimes we think it just means someone gets to go to heaven when they die. That is a massive reduction of the fullness of what is intended in those words. The salvation of God is his full, whole, good life breaking out all around us. And I thought, man, we want to see that. We want to see that. We are in this that we may see the salvation of God break out in our city. We want to see justice break out into places of injustice and healing break out into places where there is sickness. We want to see wholeness and goodness and life and belonging and peace come into our city. How do we get there? And this simple line to the one who orders his way rightly. We will see his salvation when we order our ways. And I just believe that the Lord is speaking to a reordering of our ways in this moment. We've had our season of crises. Maybe it'll go on for some time yet. Let's hope not. But we've had our season of crises, this interruption to the ways we were living before, which for most of us would have been a medley of stuff that was positive and stuff that actually wasn't nourishing our souls. Into that moment of crisis where we are interrupted, we have this opportunity to reassess and to ask the questions, is the direction I'm going the one I want to go in? Do I want to keep coasting in the way of the hobbits of the Shire, filling my belly, but ultimately with this yearning for something more adventurous and big and deep, kind of burning in my soul? Or do I want to play to that bigger life that Jesus is offering me? This moment for us is a question of the reordering of our souls, becoming the radical remnant who is so committed to being apprentices of Jesus that we make space for him to transform our hearts from the inside out. In the weeks to come, we're going to look at this question. How do we do it? 
because it sounds great. Most of us, actually, if we're really pressed and we say, actually, do we want to see the inside of our lives transformed? We'll say yes. If we say, do we want to live in the kind of joy that Jesus had? We'll say, yeah, absolutely. Do we want to abide in the deepest peace that he had? Of course we do. Do we want to live as people with extraordinary hope or just radical compassion or expectant faith? Do we want these things? And we'll say, yes. The question that we're going to come to in the next weeks is, so how do we get there? And what we find in the scriptures and in the teachings of Christian leaders and gurus and writers through the ages is actually there are specific things we can do to expose ourselves to the good and renewing work of God. That's what we're going to be spending our time on. The reordering of our ways for the exposure of our hearts to his renewing goodness in us. That though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we would be renewed day by day. To start us off, you got a bit of homework this week. So podcast listeners, we're going to send this out on email as well. Um, those of you who are in the room, there is no excuse whatsoever. On your way out, I've also put it at both doors. So if you go out either door, it's there. <laughs> no excuses. Um, your homework this week is a time audit, okay? On here, um, there is... That sounds really not fun, doesn't it? I should have given this a way better name. Um, <laughs> what we're essentially going to do is we're going to do a review of how we spend our time at the moment. Because I think many of us do the things we have to do, and then there's a few things we choose to do, and then a lot of the rest of the time, we just kind of do what happened to distract us at that moment, or what felt good in the time, right? Um, or is that just me? Um, or we do really silly things like run 20 miles and exhaust our poor bodies and push way too hard. Um, but on this, on this, what I want us to do on this sheet is to basically take an honest look at how are we using our time? What do we do all week? Are we using it in ways that are stewarding our heart towards Jesus? Or are we actually filling our time with things that we hadn't really thought very much about? On this list, there's a few different areas. Work, rest, sleep, eating, socialising, spiritual practices. Some of the things that will be a features in our weeks. And there's three blank spaces at the bottom of the form for you to fill in with any other major things. And what I want you to do is for every hour you spend on something, colour in a box. Colour in a box. So if you spend eight hours sleeping a night, firstly, respect to you because that disappears when you have children and that, you know you long for those happy days. But if you spend eight hours sleeping a night, then every day colour in eight boxes for sleeping. Um, if you have a luxuriantly long two-hour um, nap in the afternoon, you can add that in as well. If you enjoy a lengthy evening meal, colour in those boxes. If you spend a lot of time socialising, colour in those. If you, look, if you look at the end of the week and say, actually, wow, I spent 65 hours working this week. I didn't see that coming. Then you may want to have a think about that. If you look at it and think, I spent three hours a week working this week. What happened? <laughs> um, <laughs> we can have a look at that. This is not a guilt thing. This is an honesty thing. This is the moment of just saying, okay, we want to look square at our current ways of living and we're going to use this to build on it. Um, so we'll start from here next week as we just ask the question, okay, so where are we up to at the moment? Um, how we use our time forms us. We'll unpack that more next week. But actually our choices about what we do with our lives, our habits and our time have a huge significance in our spiritual formation. Start with this, take it away, have a go, um, and we'll start from there next week. Shall we stand together? Maybe we get the band up as well, if that's all right.
Dallas, Dallas Willard, who we're going to be hearing a little bit from in the coming weeks, wrote these words. And these words, I think, are as true as when he wrote them. The greatest issue facing the world today, with all its heartbreaking needs, is whether those who, by profession or culture, are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. Yeah, as these guys just start fiddling around <laughs> musically behind me, <laughs> let's just be still and close our eyes. And Holy Spirit, we just come into you right now. We come to you open and we invite you to us, but we also just, there's a way that we need to come to you as well. I want to open our hearts, open our lives, open our diaries and our choice of hobbies, open what we do in secret and what we do in public, open our motives and our thought life, open what we do with our money, open how we think about our friends. We want it to be all open to you. And so, Holy Spirit, we just rest in you for a moment now. Just saying, will you come in? We don't want our hearts closed off. We want you there because you do a good work. Guys, just let your, um, just let your eyes just roam around your inner life. What's in there? And just bring it before the Lord. He knows about it all anyway. <laughs> but just bring it before Him. Present your real self before Him. There's no condemnation here. There's no shame. But there's love and there's opportunity for transformation. And there's invitation to the wildest adventure you've ever been on. Yeah, and I think um, just think that like the Lord wants to say to some of us that um, it doesn't matter if you feel strong in this moment or not. What matters is what you're leaning on. And He's saying, "Lean on Me. I'm the only one who'll be dependable. I'm the only one who has the deepest resource that you need in this moment. Lean on to Me." <laughs> <laughs>